Across New England, commercial businesses of all sizes rely on Eastern Bank. We help clients grow by being able to answer their larger loan needs and by offering innovative solutions, smart decision-making, and one-on-one relationships. From franchise financing to community development and asset-based lending, our knowledgeable and experienced commercial team deeply understands your business and the communities you serve. See how we can help you meet your business goals at easternbank.com slash commercial. Member FDIC. In late 2007, the remains of a young woman from the Casca Nation were discovered in the Yukon woods. I always think about, I want to know what really happened. So I travel north to try to understand what happened and who was involved. It's a pretty big risk to come forward with the information that I have. I'm David Ridgen, and this is Someone Knows Something, Season 8, The Angel Carlet Case. Available now. Welcome to Say More from Boston Globe Opinion. I'm Shirley Leung. New year, new me. This year, I want to be happier. And I know I'm not alone. The number of Americans who say they're quote-unquote not too happy rose from 10 to 24% over the past decade, according to a recent survey. My guest today has thought a lot about how we can be happier Arthur Brooks is a professor at Harvard Business School. Every spring, he teaches one of the most popular classes on happiness, and it's a serious class. Now, he's bringing those lessons to the masses with the help of Oprah. The two have teamed up on a new book. It's called Build the Life You Want, The Art and Science of Getting Happier. Arthur also writes a regular column for The Atlantic. It's called How to Build a Life. Arthur Brooks, welcome to Say More. Thanks, Shirley. It's great to be with you. So last year, you were on Oprah's podcast, Super Soul, and she said she discovered your column during the pandemic. And everything you've said about building a life, growing into happiness, letting go, surrendering, it's just like, you are my people. You are a member of my (laughs) tribe of happiness I adore and admire and respect you so much. Okay, so what was your reaction when you realized Oprah was a fan of your column? I was pretty amazed, I have to tell you. It's funny because when you write a column that reaches maybe half a million people a week, you don't know who's reading it. It goes out into the ether and it's consumed by all kinds of people. And it was going during the coronavirus epidemic. So people had a lot of a lot of time to read. And it's in The Atlantic, which uh, was is kind of the it magazine for ideas at this particular point. So I hear all kinds of weird stories about people reading my column and say, oh, I read it every week. And it's like, really? That, But then I guess it sort of makes sense because people want to be happier, et cetera. So she called me after that. Um, actually, I had a book that came out in 2022 that was... And she read it on the first day. It actually was on the market. And she had been reading my column. She called me up and said, Listen, this is Oprah. And I'm like, yeah, this is Batman. <laughs> and it turns out it was Oprah. And, and she wanted to do some stuff together, starting with that podcast. But then uh, just, you know, everything else came after that. And we're like a house on fire. I mean, we have the same values and the same mission. It's just great. Yeah, why do you think Oprah, talk a little bit more about that. Why do you think Oprah felt a connection to you? I mean, did you watch her show? You, I mean, obviously, you know who she is. Yeah, for sure. I mean, Oprah, I mean, is 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 one of the, you know, handful of most prominent, you know, famous and beloved Americans. 
And the reason for that is she spent decades actually trying to lift people up and bring them together. That's that's her gig. When she finds something she really, really likes and believes in, she brings it to the people who follow her. And so she's a she's a connector and an idea person. And that's I want to be part of that value chain. <laughs> so I'm I'm curious about this quest for happiness. I mean, why why do you teach it and can happiness be learned? So that's actually a really good question. And you know, I, I'm a social scientist by background. My PhD is in, in policy analysis, but you specialized in behavioral social science my whole my whole career. Empirical data sets. Um, you know, why do people do what they do? I've studied the appreciation for beauty uh, and how it motivates people. I've 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 done a lot of research on philanthropy and why people give of themselves. Um, and what I found is that at the taproot of all of that is happiness. So that people want to be happier. And so I wrote my first book on happiness in 2008. And then I spent 11 years away running an organization, but the whole time I couldn't get it out of my head. And I kept wondering, is this more like astronomy or is it more clinical? Can you use the science only to observe the heavens, observe happiness, or, or can you use the science to actually make actionable strategies? And I proposed a class to the dean of the Harvard Business School. I said, you know, it's pretty easy to find somebody who's going to teach supply chain management or managerial accounting. Not that those are unimportant, on the contrary, but that's standard fare for business schools. What if you had something, a class that talked about how to treat your life like an enterprise, like the ultimate startup where you're the entrepreneur and the currency of your fortune is love and happiness. So I put together this class called Leadership and Happiness. It was pretty quickly oversubscribed and then it became one of the most oversubscribed classes at the school, I'm happy to say, because it's, you know, it's what people want. So what does it say about uh, this generation or, or even uh, let's let's just stick with Harvard Business School. What does it say that you you have a you, you teach a course on happiness? Is this generation missing? Are they missing something about happiness? They, 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 they need it. They crave it. Their 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 lives are, are not as good as the previous generation. What is it? Well, there's a couple of things that, that go into this at specifically at the Harvard Business School. One is that we tend to at very elite schools, we tend to sell our students a bill of goods that if they get worldly success, they'll automatically be happy. And by about the second semester of their second year, they're starting to figure out that that's actually not right, that happiness doesn't come on its own. You have to do the work and make the commitment and understand it, change patterns and practices in your life. You have to pass it on. And just like, by the way, anything else, it's happiness is actually a skill based on knowledge and commitment is what it comes down to. The second big thing is that this would be popular at any university at any level. For that matter, it would be popular in high schools. And the reason is because the United States is in a happiness slump. We've been in a general happiness decline from the early 1990s, even the late 1980s. And that's kind of a climate issue, not literally, but the climate of happiness has been gradual decline because of the a number of trends in American society have been hurting happiness. And then we've had these storms. You know, the advent of social media mm. has dramatically hurts uh, happiness. The, you know, the uh, political polarization, you know, where we're encouraged to hate our enemies, mm. that's dramatically hurt happiness. And last but not least is COVID, where everybody got a lot lonelier. So any place in our society, we could have a class like this and it would be popular. So in your book, you and Oprah write about how life is not about the pursuit of happiness. Rather, it's about being happier. Can you right. explain that distinction? Your life has negative emotions and you need them to keep you alive and to thrive. 
You need things that make you averse and make you avoid things. The, the, the sadness in your life is important. The fear, the anger, the disgust, negative emotions are critically important to your survival. Furthermore, negative experiences are the only things that really teach you. They're only things that actually make progress, help you to make progress in your life. So if you didn't have negative emotions, you'd be dead in a week. If you didn't have negative experiences, you'd never learn and grow. When people say, I want to be happy, as if you could be happy all the time, they have no idea how, what a bad idea that is. And so the result is that the first thing that I have to teach my students and I get across it to my readers, or at least I try to, is you don't need to get rid of your unhappiness. You need to learn to manage it so it doesn't manage you, so it's not maladapted, and you need to learn and grow from it. Then the point is if you could do that, you won't be happy. You'll be happier, which is the kind of progress you really want in your life. I mean, that was a big aha moment for me to, to quote Oprah. Mm -hmm. Happiness or being happier is about managing your emotions and your feelings and your reaction. It, it's right. not it's not a I could it, it's not. Uh, figure out what action I need to do next. It's it's just a, a real, it is a management issue, uh, as, as you mentioned totally. earlier. Self-management. Right. Yeah, totally. And, yeah, and Oprah, who is the world's greatest co-author and maybe one of the world's greatest people, um, she said, so really the goal is not happiness, it's happierness. Right. <laughs> it's a perfect neologism. It really gets the point across. It's, it's really nice. So uh, you wrote a whole book uh, to help people uh, get happier. So I, I know there's no quick fix, but what's step one? Yeah. Step one is actually understanding what happiness is. So, I mean, the biggest impediment is the, is the sort of the three errors that people make about happiness. Number one is thinking that, that there's something wrong with them if they're unhappy. And, you know, we talked about that a little bit, but, you know, a lot of my students, they think that if they feel anxiety and depression, that there's something broken and wrong with them. And that's not correct. Every single person on the planet has anxiety and depression. There are dials, not switches. And the question is whether or not the dials are turned up too high so that they're maladapted to your circumstances or they're interfering with your life. That's really what it comes down to. But you know, when I say to my, my B school students, or I teach at the Kennedy School too, I say the same thing. Look, you're Harvard. If you're not anxious and depressed, then you need therapy. <laughs> I mean, it's like, it's, it's tough, man. I mean, it's a tough environment. And it's a competitive one and it's, it's, it can be pretty high stress as well. So you're not broken because you have negative feelings. And if to, to think you're broken, something's wrong with you because you have negative feelings, that's a big error. That's a big error. The second error is that happiness is feelings. Mm. Happiness isn't feelings. Feelings are evidence of happiness. Like, you know, the smell of the turkey is evidence of the Thanksgiving dinner. So you need to understand what, thanks, what, what Thanksgiving dinner really is, which is protein, carbohydrates, and fat. And you got to understand what happiness is, which is a combination of enjoyment, satisfaction, and meaning. And last but not least, the goal isn't even to get happy, it's to get happier. And if once you get past these ideas, you can really start to make a whole lot of progress because you're managing your own expectations and you understand actually what your goal is for the maybe for the first time in your life. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, one of the things I love about, uh, you know, I've been reading your book, I've been listening to your some of your other podcast interviews, and I love this uh, you know, uh, you know, step one is kind of learning more, right, about your own emotions right. and managing uh, your relationship to to happiness, um, and then um, changing your habits, right, is is one thing you talk right. about, uh, but also um, passing it on and sharing. Yeah. your happiness. And and that to me was the most profound part. Um, you know, 
of 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 about your or kind of your prescription <laughs> to being happier yeah. that you have to share happiness to be happy can you talk a little bit more about that <laughs> yeah yeah the, you you really nicely put the kind of the algorithm for getting happier it you know into you know succinct form it is understand it is change and it's share so the reason that i teach the class at hbs and it's called leadership and happiness is because I want all leaders to be happiness teachers. I want them to have a concept of themselves as people that can lift other people up. And that's the secret to them remembering all the things that we're talking about. You know, I teach super concentrated lectures on neuroscience, philosophy, and social science. Those are the three big pillars of the, of the science of happiness class. They're not gonna remember it unless they pass it on. One of the, mm -hmm. they have a couple of options for their final exam. But one of the options for the final exam that most of them take is to download the PowerPoint decks, two or three of the many PowerPoint decks that they have in the class, take my name off, put their name on, give a version of the lectures, videotape them and turn in the videotape. That's their final oh, exam. Wow. Why? Because I want to see, are you teaching the class? And are people, is it, you got, I'm like, have the video on the people. Sometimes it's like a Zoom class with their family or or you know their colleagues you know it's, sometimes it's hard because i got i got one video last year that was in indonesian uh, and in i the don't language? speak indonesian in the language <laughs> yeah 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 it was and wait, how long are these videos actually, how long are these videos that they do that sometimes they can be pretty long i don't i don't require they do the whole class right, i require right. they do a unit a couple of units of the class but then I, I i dip in you know i take core samples of actually how well they're doing and i can see if they're taking it seriously or they're not because the point is look you need information you know, you start with knowledge and information. Knowledge is power when it comes to changing your life. It's not just some one weird trick on the internet, some hack, some glitch in the matrix. It's like, oh man, yeah, I started eating grapes and everything was good. I mean, it's not like right. that. You need to understand how it works, which is very different than, you know, buy a new washing machine and your clothes are gonna get cleaner. You need to know. Second, you don't need to get a, you know, suffer through a PhD like I did, but there's a lot that you can learn short of that. Second. You need to change the habits in your life. You need to make a commitment, right? And that commitment takes time, like anything else, like getting in shape, like getting in physical shape. And last but not least, so you can remember it and commit yourself to the ideas you got to teach other people about it. And if you do those three steps, I mean, it's just I have all the data in the world. You literally guaranteed will get happier. More of my conversation with Arthur Brooks after this short break. At Eastern Bank, we believe that growing business should also grow the community. That's why we work to give all business owners what they need to take their dreams to the next level. Our dedication to small businesses and communities has inspired us to create the Equity Alliance for Business program and become the number one SBA lender in Massachusetts for 15 years running. We're proud to be here for all businesses, big and small. See the good we can do for you by visiting easternbank.com slash business. Member FDIC. So now Oprah isn't your only famous collaborator. Uh, you also have been working with the Dalai Lama. Uh, how did you connect with him? Yeah, no, the Dalai Lama is a little different. I did, the Dalai Lama didn't call me. So it turns out he's never held a cell phone oh, before. Wow. That's quality of life, <laughs> wow. by the way. That's true. I mean, that, the Dalai Lama is truly has a secret to happiness. He's, he doesn't, he's never even seen social media. Why do you think he wanted to meet with you? It's, it's, 
It's a good question. <laughs> I don't think I would have. But he's interested in meeting all different kinds of people because he believes in the radical equality of human dignity. And he believes that we're all sisters and brothers, no exceptions. And he wants to bring these that ethos to new groups of people across the population that have probably never been exposed to his ideas. And so do I. What did you learn the most from uh, the Dalai Lama? You know, the the you learn everything from the Dalai Lama. So it's, it's hard to nail down the most important thing. But there are two things in particular that really helped me a lot that he has always emphasized every time I've seen him. So one thing is this, there's a, a very important idea in Buddhism that we don't emphasize in the West very much called the doctrine of emptiness. This is what's the sound of one hand clapping. It's a, it's a riddle and it seems nonsensical, but it actually isn't. It's the answer to a question which is, give me an example of an illusion. The sound of one hand clapping is an illusion. It becomes real and not an illusion when you add a second hand. And that is the essence of the doctrine of emptiness in each of our lives. Like right now, I could just be talking alone in my room, and that would be an illusion of a conversation, but I'm having a conversation with Shirley and indirectly a conversation with all of our listeners. That's important. And that's something that the Dalai Lama has impressed upon me. And it's helped me to understand this this seamless garment of relationship and love and um, understanding that we must have with, with everybody. The second big lesson that I, I, I've learned from the Dalai Lama is that I also have to be, have a sense of detachment from the connection to the other person as well. And this is a weird thing because it's like, look, if I'm communing with another person and that person is, you know, taken from my life, then it's going to be grief and sadness, et cetera. And that's normal. These are normal human emotions. But there's also this sense that people come and people go that I learn from the Dalai Lama. You know, he'll, and it's, it's funny because, you know, he, he teaches me this in very in interesting ways. One time we were, we were actually in the States and I was hosting him at a, you know, a you know, big thing down in Georgia. And we had been meeting. It was very intense for a number of days. And at the end, he said, you know, we always, he says, every time I see you, I want to give you a gift. And I said, that, thank you, your holiness. But you don't have to. He says, no, I want to, but I don't own anything is the problem. <laughs> and he starts rooting around in his little satchel and he pulls out a ballpoint pen, a ballpoint pen, right? He says, this is all I've got. Can I give this to you? And I'm thinking, this is the Dalai Lama's ballpoint pen. And it's like the best thing ever. So it's like, it's, it's like the, the, you know, the silver chalice or something. <laughs> so I, I take it and I, I thank you, your holiness. It means so much to me because it came from right. his heart. And I put it in my briefcase and I carried it around for six months. And, and I didn't know what to do with it. I'm not going to frame it because this is from the Dalai Lama. It would not be in the spirit of his holiness. So I was having lunch with a Catholic bishop six months later, and we were eating at a subway you know, like with pap paper napkins. And he's, and I said something, he said, oh, that's an interesting thing. I want to write it down so I can put it in a sermon. And I said, he said, do you have a pen? And so I look into my briefcase and there's my Dalai Lama pen. So I pull out my Dalai Lama ballpoint pen and I said, egotistically, I'm not proud of this, Shirley. I said, you know, the Dalai Lama gave me that pen. Just bragging, just like it's so lame. And, and, and the bishop says, oh, I love the Dalai Lama. He's been so important for me in my pastoral work. And, and I heard the Dalai Lama's voice literally in my ear saying, you know what you're supposed to do right now. And, and I said, I said, uh, your grace, would you please accept that pen? And he said, I can't. I said, trust me, I have to give that pen to you. 
Why? Because the Dalai Lama taught me that the gift was in the giving and only in the circulation of the giving and the love does it remain, does it not coagulate? And that was the lesson he was trying to teach me. And I got it in that mm -hmm. moment. That is love with detachment. Mm -hmm. That was the yes. point that he was trying to get across. And then I, I saw him three months later, I was back in Dharamsala and I told him the story and he gave me another pen. <laughs> wow. Well, you have to pass it on, right? You got to yeah. pass it yeah, on. Yeah, for sure. And so that, that's uh -huh. a beautiful story, Arthur. Um, so Arthur, has studying and teaching happiness made you a happier person? That's my secret. That's my dirty secret. You figured it out. You know, <clears throat> this is not research. This is me-search. Happiness is hard for me. Now, it's not because I'm a miserable person. It's I'm a very, very high affect person. In, in the book, you read the book, you know that there's a test in there about what your affect levels are. I'm very intense on the positive affect, of, on you know joy and interest, et cetera, but I'm also very high in the negative affect. And the result is that brings down my affect balance and, and, and I'd like life to have more happiness in it. I'd like more happierness. And so the result is that I studied this to see as a proposition, can I get happier if I study it, change my life and pass it on? And it worked. And so I kept doing it. My own affect balance has improved by 60% in the past five wow. years. And the, and the reason is not because I hit the lottery and it's not because I teach at Harvard, which is not the secret of happiness. It's because I teach happiness, write about happiness, bring ideas of happiness to other people. And I get to meet the most wonderful people in the world, including His Holiness the Dalai Lama and Her Holiness Oprah Winfrey. Wait, the affect test, is that the one where you divide people into four? Is, is that the one? Yeah, the PANIS test, the positive affect, yeah. negative affect sequence, which is in yeah. the book. And people can find out that they're one of four affect personalities. So I took the test too. In terms of the intensity. Yeah, I took the, what are you? I'm a mad scientist like you. Ah, like me, you're a mad scientist. And, and that's great because you're more likely to be able to do all sorts of nice things and have ideas and, and get really intensely involved in life. But, you know, it's also harder to be your, your, your life partner <laughs> because you're going to be bouncing all over the place like a pinball and you're going to exhaust people, which means you need to manage yourself metacognitively sometimes to lower your affect balance, at least the way you express it. Yeah, I think my husband would agree with that and my colleagues yeah. and my editors and yeah. my producer. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, welcome to my life too. It's like I'm I'm the maddest of the mad scientists. I'm at the 95th percentile in positive affect and the 90th percentile in negative affect, oh. which is really, really high. And and that's hard to live with sometimes. My wife reminded me of that this very morning. <laughs> <laughs> Arthur, I'm sure I'm not the first one to tell you this, but I feel happier just talking to you. Um, so Arthur Brooks is a professor at Harvard Business School. His new book is called Build the Life You Want, The Art and Science of Getting Happier. Thank you for being on Seymour, Arthur. Thank you, Shirley. Thanks to all of our friends in Boston and around the world who are listening to this great podcast. Seymour is a production of the Boston Globe. Today's episode was produced by Anna Kusmer and Alexis Sargent, with help from Scott Hellman and Abby Kanina. Our editor is Jim Dow. Our engineer is Uzair Ahmed. Our music is from APM Music. If you like the show, please follow us and leave us a review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can email us at saymore at globe.com. I'm Shirley Leung. Thanks for listening. <laughs>